0: You are listening to DNA Discoveries, Stories of Finding Family. I'm Edward Looney. Before we begin today's episode, just a little housekeeping. First, I am always looking to interview people. If you are a person whose life has been changed by an autosomal DNA test, please reach out to me. You can contact me directly on email at Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to dnadiscoveries.fireside.fm and use the contact feature on the website. Share with me a little snippet of your story and I'll get back to you and we can set up a time to discuss and to share your story. Secondly, I think you're really going to enjoy today's show. It's with an author who just came out with a new book. Uh, about her own story of finding many, many siblings. You'll learn more in just a few moments. I encourage you to get her book. And also, if you don't mind, share this podcast with others who you think might be interested in it. And then finally, if you could rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be helpful in gaining more attention, more listeners, and more followers. And now I invite you to stay tuned to listen to my interview with Krista Bilton. Last month I stopped by the local Barnes and Noble and did what I normally do. I browsed all the books in the new book section, both fiction and nonfiction. Personally, I prefer the latter. Glancing over the titles, I found one: Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings. Immediately, I thought of this podcast, DNA Discoveries, and said, this is right up my alley, and maybe I'll be able to interview the author. So I did add it to my Goodreads account and later downloaded the Audible book so I could listen on a long drive to Chicago. During that drive, I listened to the book in its entirety, partly because I listen on, exp- uh, on faster speed, so at one and a half, but also uh, it was a long drive. I've never done anything like that before because usually I need to take breaks from the text that I'm listening to, but this book, Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings captivated me, and I wanted to keep listening. I had lots of questions, and I'm so grateful that the author Krista Bilton responded to a request via Instagram to do an interview for DNA Discoveries, because indeed, through a DNA autosomal test, she found family and has quite the story to tell. So thank you so much, Krista, for joining me today.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, your book is titled Normal Family. Now, it's my impression that it was probably far from normal at one point. (laughs) you realized your life was different at school, because not all people had dads that just dropped in from time to time. There were the moves from home to home with different relationships that your mom had. So why a normal family? Why title it that?
1: Yeah, it was meant to be ironic, obviously, because I think anyone who reads past page like five, um, will get a clear picture that my my family was anything but quote unquote normal. Um, but it was really, you know, that, um, that term, a normal family, I feel like for people who, I feel like there's a specific type of person who at some point wishes for a quote unquote normal family, whether or not that actually exists. And so the title was really speaking to that person. Cause I think that that is, that's who I wrote the book for as much as it's, I think, broad enough interest and in page turner that it, that it's perhaps for everybody. Um, that was sort of the audience that I had in mind when I wrote the book. Just those people that felt for whatever reason that there was something that made their family different. And that was a challenge for them. Um, so it, it was a challenge for me because um, so many parts of, of my family were different. But, you know, I've now come to embrace it. And, and so it's that journey from, from struggling to embracing.
0: And your That's book sort of is the the book, your book is like a memoir. So the latter portion of it deals, especially with the 35 siblings that you met. And so the first part is really building up to that, telling your life story, all of that. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think about myself and how maybe one day I could write a a memoir in this fashion. And I was thinking, well, what would I put as chapters and things like that? And what I noticed is that you have lots of information, lots of details and I'm wondering how did you come to learn all of the information especially some of the things that you might not have readily known yourself.
1: Yeah, you know that was in a way so my mother had a as you read, my mother had a a complex relationship with the truth. So as I was growing up, I had I never was told for example that she had paid the man I had known as dad. To, to have me or that she had then paid him, you know, for his sperm, but then that she had paid him to be in the picture as quote unquote dad. Um, and there were so many things that I didn't know. And I wasn't told, you know, she would, she, my mom was gay as, as you read. And she, um, she had all these different girlfriends who would come in and out and I would come to know those, those women as my second mother for a few years, and then they would disappear. And instead of, My mother sitting me down and explaining that the relationship had ended, she would say things like, well, mommy, mommy Faye went on vacation and she'll be back next month with with presents for you, Krista. And so, you know, that was the kind of fib. That's my mom's tender word for bending the truth, that she would tell me to sort of cover up the harder things. So in my adulthood, when my mother sat me, me and my little sister who I had been raised with down to explain that you know, in fact, my father had been this prolific sperm donor after I was born and that I had all these biological siblings. I think that was the beginning of me realizing that much of what she had told me about my life was, I just didn't, it just turned out that there was so much I didn't know. And so in many ways, the book is my going on this journey to to uncover the truth. And so, you know, practically speaking, what that involved was the next several years, the next decade, I I started at investigating what had really happened, and that involved talking to my mom with more pointed questions. But it also involved going and speaking to old friends of hers who were there and during my childhood. It also involved asking my dad. You know, I I think I interviewed both of my parents for you know, several not hundreds of hours, but I, in in depth over the course of ten years and. The other thing is often I think we don't ask our parents basic questions, even though we know these people in such a deep, intimate way. For some reason, there's a lot. I I don't know if this is true of all families, but in mine, it certainly was the case that there were a lot of questions that I just never asked that I probably would have asked a good friend as I was getting to know them. So the book was really me getting to know my parents and then also understanding the story, which even though I had intuitively understood was really crazy to live through. There was so much I didn't know. And it was so yeah, so that so I don't know if that answers your question. But
0: yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think for myself, my mother has passed and my grandparents, everything like that. So you kind of wish that you could have asked those questions. And so it's great that you had the opportunity to do it before it was too late. And then what you learned, you were able to share and to write this memoir of yours. Yeah, now,
1: that's right. Uh, and I think there are so many universal themes like, like you know, secrecy and shame and... Uh, yeah, this complex. I know this this podcast is called DNA Discoveries, so so I'm guessing that a lot of the listeners also had some shocking DNA discoveries. And it is lucky when you can ask these questions.
0: Now, I'm wondering if you ever maybe felt like the adult as you were growing up that you moved into a new home. And one of the anecdotes you tell is that you were concerned about the cost and your mother just told you to stop, you know, stop nitpicking or whatever, kind of just confronted you about being so concerned about that. Or your sister Caitlin was offered to another family for adoption and you were blamed. So, uh did you feel sometimes like the adult that you had to parent your parent?
1: Yes, I I definitely felt that way, especially as my mother's drug addiction and alcoholism got uh, more extreme um, into my adolescent years. I, you know, very early on, I remember um, starting to hide my feelings and my emotional experience of being in the family because I felt that my mother just couldn't, couldn't take that. And, and it was always sort of her feelings that I was concerned about. And I think that's really common for kids of, you know, whether dysfunctional family units or kids who come from alcoholism or addiction. I think that's a pretty common experience. Now I'm happy to say that my mom's sober and, you know, we have a really good relationship, but, but I'm still that, that never changed. I'm still the parent. The other day she, 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 accidentally like Freudian slip called me mom. (laughs) So uh, I'm still in that role, but it's okay. It works now.
0: I know for me, that was something that I felt like lots of people would tell me it's like you're a parent to your mom. And in fact, in the latter years of her life, you know, I ended up funding a lot of her her, you know, Mm. car expenses or rent or whatever. So, so I did really feel that I was the parent uh, in that situation. Your mom then learns about your father's secret in a sense that he became a sperm donor that he was on the front page of the New York Times. He tells your mom this and it takes your mom quite a bit, quite a while to share this information with you. And I'm wondering, what were your first reactions then uh, to this news? And how did you process it?
1: Yeah, it was, I I would say that it took me almost 10 years to process it fully. Um, You know, it was, it was so many, it was so many things to process, because first of all, I had never been told that my father was a sperm donor to me, I had just thought that I had been told that he and my mom were best friends who had decided to have a kid together. So, and nor had my mother ever told me that she had financially incentivized him into the picture. So it so I didn't, I didn't discover that right when she told us about the siblings, but, but there were questions that led me to figuring that out. So that was something to process just cause it was like, is he my dad? Is he a sperm donor? Um, You know, and it was complex because at that time my dad was was living in a van and struggling with mental health issues. And it was my relationship with him was strained and and difficult to process. So this just added a layer on top of that. Then I had to process all of these siblings. And, you know, a couple days after my mom finally told me about them, one of them reached out to me on Facebook and and sort of bombarded me in her enthusiasm with all of this information about the siblings. And there was a Facebook group at the time where they were all meeting. And, and I think the profile picture on the Facebook group was like 12 of them on, you know, posing for a photo on, on a set of like on a swing set. And it was just, and they all looked like me and they all looked like my little sister and my dad. And, um, and, you know, I think because family had been so complicated growing up, the idea of one new, family member let alone 12 or you know 30 or 100 it it was just too much and then you know there's the third piece which is that the only reason my mother finally told me this story is because she realized through a crazy set of circumstances which you'll have to read in the book that I was most likely dating my (laughs) half-brother so um so then I had to think you know just practically speaking I had to figure out how to break up with this man and whether or not to tell him the secret, which I didn't feel like was my place because he loved the father who had raised him. And I didn't think I should be the the person who came and exposed his own vast family secret. So it was a lot. to It was a lot to process. And I, to be honest, I didn't I I just couldn't handle it at that time. So I pretty much just decided I would have nothing to do with any of these biological siblings and that I would pretend that this thing hadn't happened. And so for almost 10 years, I spoke to none of them. And I I rarely thought about it. That was my my coping mechanism.
0: In the book, you wrote that you never read anything about your dad's other children. So you never looked for the New York Times article, you never watched the documentaries. Why was that? Why did you make that decision?
1: (sighs) You know, it was it was just too uh, so at the time I was I was myself getting sober I had struggled with a lot of different um, I guess what you could call sort of um, the the wreckage of the past of of my crazy upbringing I had I had started repeating a lot of the p- patterns of my parents and I was just at the time I had just graduated college I was very newly sober now I have you know something like thirteen years of sobriety but. Um, and I was just trying to get my life together. I was, I was broke and I had just recovered from an eating disorder. And so, um, I just, my dad, you know, everything about the situation with my father was so complicated and painful for me. It was painful for me that he was on the streets that I didn't have the money to help him. It was painful learning that my mom had paid him to be around. Um, all you know i think i think i just had too much pain attached to to my parents and so that it was sort of it felt like a pandora's box that i just couldn't open at that moment i did ultimately open it and it all ended up being really beautiful and wonderful but i think that it's it had a lot to do with timing and and where i was in my life at, at the time of the discovery and it also doesn't you know It doesn't feel that I've heard from a lot of readers um, who have messaged me on on social media or over email who some of them, you know, just recently found out um, about a half sibling or that they had a sperm donor. And and I think that it's not that uncommon to react with not wanting to handle it at that moment. Um, There are other people who jump in enthusiastically and, you know, embrace these new family members as family, but I think for other people, it's it's more complicated. So I think part of telling that story was that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be truthful about my journey with it, because it seems like it's a common one.
0: And your sister, Caitlin, and you decided initially, that you didn't want to talk to any of these siblings, much like you didn't want to watch the documentaries, read the papers, you didn't want to talk to the siblings. So and you didn't really for quite a while from what I gathered, but then you did. So what changed? What motivated you to reach out and to allow them to enter into your life? Was it just as you mentioned a matter of time?
1: I think it was a matter of time. I think it was also I had done a lot of, um, you know, mental and spiritual work on myself, my, you know, I had I had not I had resolved a lot of my childhood stuff I'm I'm happy to say and and yeah I was in a it was a combination of being in a much better place um with this miraculous connection with one of my half sisters that happened a decade later that was just so um it was so bizarre and wild that it just cracked open my, it it just cracked open that Pandora's box where it was like, okay, I can develop a relationship with one of these biological siblings because, you know, the universe or whatever you want to call chance has, has brought us together in a bizarre way. And then I think it was through interacting with her and she had such a different attitude towards it. She had grown up, she had grown up with you know, two traditional parents. She had never been told she had a sperm donor. She was an only child and she had always wished for siblings. And so when she took it, you know, just randomly took a DNA test and realized that she was, uh, that she had all of these siblings for her, instead of seeing this as this dark, heavy thing, which is how I had taken it probably partially because that was my, how my mom took it. And we so often, take on the attitude of our parents, but also just she just thought it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to her. And um, I think that getting to know her and seeing that she just saw it as this light, exciting thing that she was curious about, it just made me realize that my whole attitude up until that point was entirely a choice and that any moment I could choose to see it her way. And and I think that there's really something powerful in that, that you could just make a decision to to have a different perspective on something. Um, and so that's what I ultimately did. And, and now I have really beautiful relationships with quite a few of the siblings. Besides
0: learning about this news when your mother breaks it to you, learning about the New York Times headline, how many siblings you possibly could have... Another way that you're able to identify them was through an autosomal test or ancestry DNA as you used it. And your mom was the one that wanted to, you to do the ancestry DNA. She didn't understand really everything that went into it or all the complexities of it. And I'll I'll admit myself, when I did my test, I had no idea that it would match you with family members and things like that. And and. I just wanted to know if I was Irish or not. That, that was why I took the test. And, and that was basically what she wanted. She just wanted to know ancestry, heritage, things like that. But then there was this other aspect where people began messaging you and saying, how are we related and so forth. So what was that experience like for you when you started getting those messages and did you respond right away? Did you ignore them? Uh, Because that's really how these people began entering into your life, I think.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, you know, it's so the first so the first batch of siblings had been much earlier than DNA testing. So before Ancestry and 23andMe, the way that my initial batch of siblings were getting were being connected to each other was around 2005 through this website called the Donor Sibling Registry. So this first group um, were children who had known they had a sperm donor, largely from because they were raised with um, a gay parent or uh, a single mother where, you know, where it was like there was an obvious missing piece that they had known to ask. So when this website came out, they all registered. And what would happen on that website is instead of giving a saliva sample, you would just log in and say, you know hey i i'm from donor 150 and then you'd be connected with other people who had also said they were from donor 150 so that is how the original batch came together and that's how the new york times story happened and and um so when when they first started reaching out to me on facebook at that time i had made it abundantly clear that i wanted nothing to do with the siblings and so that word had spread and and so in the years since, no one had contacted me because it had been very clear. Hey, Krista doesn't want to be part of this, so don't reach out to her. So, so fast forward ten years or what have you, and exactly as you're saying, my mother wanted to know if we had any Jew- if we had any Jewish ancestry because you know her big clue was that she her grandmother had had a large nose and she always identified with the Jews and she I had married a Jewish man and she wanted she desperately wanted for us to have Jewish ancestry. So I was breastfeeding my son and deliriously sleep deprived. And my mom walked in with one of these ancestry.com testing kits and told me to spit into it. And I honestly just did not give it a second thought. It didn't, it was just like the timing of it. And also the comedy of the fact that everything my mom does always leads to these incredibly wild situations you know if it weren't for her none of these siblings would exist because she had actually sought out and and recruited my father to be a sperm donor in a hair salon in the 1980s and um you know accidentally taken him to the California cryobank and introduced him to the profession so It's sort of a moment of comedy in the book, the fact that like she didn't want me to have anything to do with the siblings. And then here she goes and signs me up for, you know, the biggest DNA social network there is. (laughs) So, um, So it was but it was the timing of it. So she had just signed me up when this woman, Jennifer, took her test. And so she had found me before she had found the larger group of siblings who would have told her not to contact me, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, And so, you know, but it, but stories like yours and Jennifer's, like, I think they're more and more common and um, you know, we've had to create protocols as a group because now, so we were on Facebook and then we moved to uh, WhatsApp and then the, you know, the group kept growing. So now I think we have something, you know, in the 40s of siblings and we expect many more. But um, WhatsApp became too overwhelming. So then we, we moved to a Discord group. And now whenever there's a new match on 23andMe or Ancestry, we, you know, there have been discussions in the group about how we should have a protocol for how to approach those people. Because it seems like people are in a very vulnerable state, right? When they make these discoveries and and how you how you get those messages can affect how you feel about it um but you know the hilarious thing is among among many of the traits that i share in common with my siblings is that we're all very impulsive so we don't necessarily listen to the protocols and you have quite a few rogue siblings who just reach out um there's a hilarious scene in the book where Jennifer, the one sibling um, that I met first when she is staying at my house and we were matched with a new sibling while she's there. And she writes, she composes this long introductory message to this new woman who doesn't know she has a sperm donor parent. And then she thinks the internet isn't working. So she rewrites the email and sends it. And then she thinks that it still hasn't sent. So she does this five times. (laughs) And so this poor woman... I think opens her ancestry.com email and has five different emails that all say the same thing, but written slightly differently.
0: <laughs> oh
1: <wow>. So, uh, <laughs> talk about, yeah. You know, I think she thought that Jennifer was spam initially. Sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's, I think one reviewer said a, a dozen sitcoms are writing themselves daily through these exchanges.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah, and it's incredible what ancestry DNA can do and how it does change lives. For me it changed my life for the better. I had no family essentially. Mm-hmm. And then I find a cousin that my story is my mother was put up for adoption and so my grandparents uh, uh adopted her and then uh I did the Ancestry DNA and Then found out that my mother had a sister, and they both died very young from complications of different health uh, diseases and such. But uh, yeah, yeah, never knew. My mother never knew she had a sister. And uh, and so then this cousin reaches out to me, and we're talking and everything like that. And I'm like, well, send me a picture of your mother. And she sent me a picture. And I thought someone was playing a practical joke on me or something, because they look like they could be identical twins, even though they had different fathers, they looked like twins. And so it was just very mm-hmm. uh, incredible uh, to, to see that. But then I realized that when I sat down and had lunch with my cousin for the very first time, and her husband came along with her, I was thinking to myself, she has the same mannerisms as I have. And I'm like, I've never met her before, but yet we do the same thing with our hands or we say something the same way or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. I honestly, in that moment, felt like I was looking at a female version of myself. I thought I was looking in the mirror and I saw myself as, as a woman. And you mentioned Jennifer already, and, and you share in the book that when you met her, there were some pretty uncanny things that the two of you shared. For example, you both had recently bought the same books and you both were at the same art studio years apart in Europe. So you have these different situations that you share commonality even before you realized it. So I guess the question might be, how do we explain these crazy realities? I don't know if you'll have an answer to it, but it's just one of those things that, we kind of just marvel at the the similarities.
1: Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes you, at least in my case, it made me appreciate the strength of nature. Whereas I think growing up, I had been um, raised to believe that nurture was everything. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, some of the similarities are 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 truly um, just mind-boggling. Like every time a new sibling pops up, you know, two out of three, their profile picture will have will be shared with their cat. Sure. <laughs> um, which is, you know, pretty specific. I mean, lots of people have cats, but the but that love of not just having cats, but then, you know, having the cat be such a big part of their identity that that seems to be something that all of the siblings share. Um, I would have a cat if it weren't for my husband being allergic to them. But um, but, you know, beyond beyond that, we, we do. We all look very similar. Some of them some of us have struggled with the same. You know, we're all very sensitive. We all, most of us have ADHD. Um, many of us are artistic. Uh, You know, almost all of us did musical theater in high school. Almost none of us did organized sports. Um, And so that just makes you think about things a little differently. Um, I know in the siblings case, you know, many of them talk about how there was a missing piece when they didn't know they had a sperm donor. And then uncovering this fact, it, it led them to be a little bit easier on themselves with some of the stuff they had struggled with, because when you understand that something might be a part of your nature, something you were born with, as opposed to something you acquire, um, it can lead to more like self-forgiveness about that stuff. And then it can also, you you just approach how you handle those things a little differently, if that makes sense. Um, You know, my nature and my nurture are complicated, but I'm also living a, you know, a really rewarding, uh, happy life now. So it's also, you know, there's a there's a mystical element to it all too. like why some people are are hurt and broken by a certain upbringing or a certain genetic inheritance, and why people some people can get through it.
0: You warmed up to the idea of meeting these individuals. And if it wasn't for Jennifer reaching out, not knowing that you didn't want any contact, maybe none of this would have unfolded. But essentially, as you get connected to all these people, there was this idea of having a family reunion and bringing everybody together, and then the (laughs) opportunity to look at pictures and maybe even meet uh, your father and their father. So whose idea was it to have the family reunion?
1: It was my idea. (laughs) So I guess you can say I I did a 180. um, Or a three. Yeah, a 180. you know, Jennifer, at first I had Jennifer come stay with me. And then through her, I started just warming up to the idea of getting to know some of the siblings. And then, and then I had, you know, I had this home that was well suited for entertaining. And I thought, Oh, maybe, maybe we should get everyone together because there were so many more of them at that point, And most of them I had never met in person. And, um, I don't know. It sort of felt appropriate as the, as the big sister, the you know the first the first one of of my father's <laughs> um, biological children. It just, but it, it felt appropriate that I should be the one hosting, and um, and there was also just a, I don't know. I don't know. It just happened that way. But it was um, qu- quite quite a surreal experience to have so many. I mean, I don't know what what else you could compare. compared to it maybe like if you go to um, certain communities in Utah (laughs) where they have that many siblings but it's it's bizarre having so many people running around in the same house that are all from the same biological father and look alike we had a couple friends stop by that weekend and I I think they've been forever changed (laughs) from the experience
0: I actually have a friend, uh, and I, I witnessed their marriage as a religious leader. And so, uh, but this friend of mine, similar situation in a sense, uh, a little different story. And uh, I'm hoping that maybe his story will be the next one that I'll tell on DNA mm-hmm. Discoveries. We've been talking about when we should do that and everything like that. So it might be a nice follow up to yours, but he he also was a donor conceived baby. And I know that they went out and they had a reunion, I think maybe in Minnesota. He's gone to some weddings of uh, some of these people. So they've really bonded. I know that NBC or one of the morning shows did a little segment on them too. And so One of the things, though, uh, that you mention in the book is that your sister Caitlin really wasn't warm to this idea of bringing all of these people together. She she said, just because we share biology doesn't make us family. So has her mind changed about this? Uh, Does she consider them in some ways family now? And uh, does she engage as well?
1: yeah i mean i don't I don't want to speak for her, but I you know I think it's not uncommon that two siblings who are raised in the same family have very different attitudes towards um, donor conceived siblings um, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if that's the right term for it, but um so you know there are quite a few of the siblings who I have and you know I'm using that term siblings lightly and I think even for some people that can be uh, a sensitive topic for my sister for example she was like you're just calling these people your brothers and sisters but like we've been through a lot together and I like earned that title (laughs) you know or you're introducing your kids to to these people like aunts and uncles but I am the aunt so I think that um I think it can be tricky for some family members. You know, often I've seen that attitude, not just with siblings having a different approach in the same family, but, um, but often parents who used a donor get quite um, emotional around the idea of their children um, seeking out, for example, a meeting with their biological Donor, father, or, you know, meeting the siblings, I think it can sometimes feel like a threat to that family unit. And it, you know, this new type of relationship is is new. It's you know, it's because of ancestry.com and 23andme and the internet that a lot of these connections are being made. Um, you know, not just with donors but also like you said with adoptions or you know, historical things that happened decades ago but changed the trajectory of a family. And so it's it's just bringing up so much interesting and emotional material to deal with. And I think everyone has a different Uh, Reaction to it and and your reaction can change over time.
0: So,
1: yeah.
0: In the book, you mentioned that communication was sometimes a bit overwhelming. You can imagine you have 35 siblings, and maybe it's even more now than when the title uh, was given to your book. But you said that you started checking the WhatsApp group less and less, for example, and maybe that communication began to wane. And I'm guessing though, that there's probably a few that of the large group, a few that maybe you bonded with maybe Jennifer, for example, but do you stay in touch with all of these individuals? Do you stay in touch with a handful? Do you exchange Christmas cards? What's it like now in this relationship as a newfound family in this sense? Uh, do you share time together?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, I, it's exactly right. There was this initial enthusiasm. There was the reunion. There was, you know, the larger platforms that we're all communicating on. And then as time went on, there are definitely a small handful that I bonded with in a deeper way. And and so, you know, those those people I now communicate with mostly over text or call or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find a time for Jennifer to come to L.A. to spend time together. But I think just like in a regular family you're not gonna have a deep connect, connection with, you know, your a million cousins. There will probably be a few that you, you know, have a ton of shared interest with, or, you know, the way life circumstance works out. You guys live in proximity to each other. There's a brother who lives in L. A. and um, and he and I have become close friends. And so, you know, it's a bit of proximity. It's a bit of shared interest. But it's it definitely you know, at a certain point, once you get into the (laughs) forties, it's just too many people. I, but, but life may at a later time, put me in closer proximity with others, you know, or a new one might come who I really connect with. And, And so it's sort of this more fluid growing thing. Um, but, but yeah, that's sort of the state of it now. And we do, you know, I'm still on that thread. I still check it occasionally and, around the holidays, we do a secret Santa that I usually participate in. But that's, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's neat. That's, that's a wonderful way, you know, right around the holidays to, to kind of share in the joy of of the season. So you you mentioned that you're married, you have kids, what's your husband think about it all? What, what do your children make of this crazy story of a normal family that you tell? (laughs)
1: well, my kids are so little, they're five and seven. So they, you know, I, I, don't think they quite understand terms like aunt or uncle or, you know, I mean, they do with, you know, they, they know my mom as their grandma and they know my sister as their aunt, but, but it's really that unit that they think of, I think as our family, but that has, that has to do with shared time. I think, you know, we also have close family friends that, are their godparents that are not related to them biologically, but who they probably see as their core family? But um, but you know, should should the siblings be around more? I'm sure they would grow to think of them that way. Uh, my um, my husband thinks it's comical. He, you know, the poor man has to deal with my. My my head is lost in the clouds a lot of the time. I guess you could call that my ADD. And you know my my phone battery is always lingering at one percent. And I space out when he talks to me. So when he is around the other siblings and they're doing the same thing, I think it just makes him shake his head and laugh. And um, <laughs> so and a lot of you know a lot of our quirks uh, that he loves and that annoy him are shared with the siblings. So. I think he yeah I think he thinks of it as one big comedy um which I don't know if that's the way he should think about it but uh and you know he he also has good relationships with some of them um and and loves them um so
0: There was a moment yeah, in the he's book He's a
1: funny character in the book. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, there was a moment in the book where you meet your father at PetSmart, you cross paths, you're maybe shaken by it, he could have ran in that moment when uh, maybe you started telling him these stories about your father and your family and everything like that, but he stayed and that's a a testament to him and and the love that the two of you have for sure.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I struggled with growing up in, in my complicated family was that I had a lot of um, I had a lot of shame about various aspects of it. And there were many years when I didn't tell people what was really going on at home. And that extended into adulthood where I would have very, very few friends that really knew much about my home situation. And also that that extended to relationships with, with men that I had, had throughout the years. And I think that really prevented uh, me from having close relationships. And I think you know, one of the things in the book is, is finally being in this relationship where I am able to be honest and how rewarding that is. And I, so I, I wrote about that journey, too, with shame, because uh, I think that that is another universal feeling for a certain for a, for a person who comes from a certain type of situation and and just realizing that most people we don't give credit to people. And most people are compassionate, and uh, will love you more, not less, I think, for the for the difficult challenges you might have gone through.
0: Sure. And one of the things too, that you end the book kind of meeting your father who is going to go off to India, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he was going to yeah. do some sort of spiritual experience there. He even hired some people to travel with him and all of this. So um very interesting, very unique. Um, did he ever come back to the States? Is he still in India? Does he know you wrote this book? Uh, yeah. So just curious, maybe as the last question, just to talk a little bit about the reception of the book amongst your parents.
1: Yeah, my so so I, I yeah, I end the book, my father has gotten his inheritance from his mother, and he Uses the money, as you say, to to go off to India, which he's been talking about doing for 30 years. But we sort of never believed he would actually go. And so he believes the world is going to end and there's going to be some false flag attack involving aliens in the United States. And so he has to go to India. And so um, one of the final scenes of the book is me saying goodbye to him, not not really truly believing that he will actually leave. But he does get on that airplane and he does go to India Um, and he was there for, he was there through the pandemic and then he came back and now he's back, back in his usual situation in his car in Venice. And that's a really complicated situation for me. Still, I, sometimes I just, I just pretend that it doesn't exist because it's too much for me um, to emotionally deal with. And then, but he and I have a good relationship we talk on the phone a couple you know a couple times a month and we text and but he it's it's very hard to explain to someone who doesn't have a family member like this but he sort of chooses that life and who am i to um who am i to say that a different way of being is better he, you know he i've off, i've offered to help him find all kinds of housing and he, he just he's not interested you know and part of partially because he says that Tomorrow he's moving back to India, so there's no point in planning. But um, but he, you know, he's not read the book. He, I had read out loud several passages to him before I published it, just to make sure that I've gotten it right. And uh, and he sends me news articles on it. <laughs> so I think it's maybe too much to read the whole book. But he said he happily sends me news articles. He believes that, you know, as it was his spiritual mission in life to give birth to all these children he he thinks that part of that uh part of that sort of the way that it was meant to go in the universe was that i would then write this book so Hmm. i think it somehow fits into his entire narrative and it's sweet um you know he he just lives a very unconventional life he lives in his car and he he's nocturnal he sleeps during the day and then he rescues animals at night um He's currently caring for two two cats that belong to homeless women that are on drugs that can't care for them. So you know, it's there's something sweet. It's not your typical. Um, it's it's yeah. Who am I? Who am I to judge? But but that's the complicated situation with my dad. And then my mother. Um, my mother has had a journey with the book. You know. For years I had talked about writing this story and I think it was a bit like the boy who cried wolf. Like she just thought I would never actually publish it. And so when I told her that I, that I really was writing it and I started recording these interviews that we did for, you know, dozens and dozens of hours, she just happily participated because in her mind it was just quality time with her daughter talking about her wildlife. And so I think when I initially handed her a final manuscript, uh, she had a real nervous breakdown because she realized that the stories she had told me I'd put in the book. And, um, and so that was, that was a challenge and that was a lot of work for anyone who has a, a memoir burning inside of them. You know, it is complicated when you have parents that are alive that you're writing about, but, um, but the things that she was very sensitive about that she didn't you know, that I had to fight her uh, to include in the book were not the things that I was expecting. So I really, th- I was prepared for a fight around some of my documentation of her drug use, for example, and how that impacted me and my sister. And that she was fine with that. She's like, yeah, everyone, everyone's a drug addict. <laughs> um, but she really didn't want me to tell certain stories about her own childhood with her parents who had long or long gone, because in her mind, she sort of wanted to protect them. Uh, and I just thought that was so fascinating because some of the stuff I tell late in the book that I discovered about my mom's childhood, I think it, I think it's really critical that it, that information was in there because only in discovering my mother's early trauma was I really able to understand and forgive her for some of the harder things. And I also thought that would be the case with readers, and yet she was happy to sort of like die on the sword of some of her more problematic decisions rather than have me tell these stories. And so that just speaks to the power of shame. Um, and yeah, the, you know, just some of the complicated feelings around complicated families, but now she's happy with the book. I think that in her own little, you know, circle, it's given her some notoriety and, you know, people and, and, in the building that she lives in are really nice to her after the book came out that previously ignored her. So I think in her mind, she's happy that the story's out there. And, you know, she, she led this wild, outrageous life. And I, you know, part of the book was just me wanting to tell, tell the story of her because it's so unique and original.
0: Is this the first book you've written? Yeah. Do you think it'll turn into a movie?
1: Uh, you know, we're having some early conversations about that. Um, nothing signed yet. So, but, it would but be, I, I'll, I promise to let you know. <laughs>
0: you Sure. It would be interesting, you know, your mother's reception of a movie that portrays her and your father, you know, that would be kind of, um, I, I think that she might be a little worried about that or taken aback and, <laughs> and, and such, you know, given what you just shared, but yeah, no, definitely I could see it as a movie, And do you think you'll write another book? Is there another one burning within you?
1: You know, this was the story that was burning within me, but there are more stories where that came from. Part of the hard part about writing a book like this is just the process of selection when you, you know, you're telling a life story and you want to kind of keep it thematically relevant. But so there's so much you have to discard. So I don't know, maybe, maybe some essays next, um, sort of David Sedaris style, but, but I don't know right now I'm just enjoying connecting with readers and having it out there and, you know, I'm really proud of it. Uh, be. so just having completed it. (laughs) Oh, thank you.
0: Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. There, you know, there were a few parts where, like, uh, my heart ached for you, in a sense, some of the things you went through and everything. So a wonderful book. I'm happy I saw it at Barnes & Noble and glad that I listened uh, just because, for convenience sake, for me, uh, listened to the audio version, got to, got to know your story, and then uh, now to be able to speak with you. So if people want to get your book, Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings – They could do like me and go to Barnes and Noble and find it on one of their shelves, but they can also go to any place they buy their books online. But do you have any recommendations of how to find it or how to find you
1: online? Yeah. So, uh, so the book is sold wherever books are sold. Of course, it's always great to support your local bookstore. Um, I also recently, through the publication of the book, learned about Libro which is sort of like Audible, but um, the proceeds of of the audiobook goes, is split with local bookstores, which is pretty cool. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, but you can find it and yeah, just, just type in normal family and or, you know, find me online, Krista Bilton. And uh, yeah, I, I love hearing from readers. So please don't hesitate to reach out um, after you've read it.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today on DNA Discoveries to talk a little bit more about your story that you told in your book and really to get to know you better. It's been truly a privilege and an honor for me.
1: Thank you so much. Same same goes here.
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of DNA Discoveries, Stories of Finding Family. I spoke with Krista Bilton today, the author of Normal Family and she shared with us her story of finding her siblings who were donor conceived and shared a little bit about how she grew into friendship and relationship with her newfound family members. If you have a story you would like to share on DNA Discoveries, please email the podcast at dna.discoveriespodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com or by going to dnadiscoveries.fireside.fm and using the contact feature. Don't forget to share the podcast and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll tune in next time as I continue to share these stories of finding family through DNA discoveries.